0: Arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane in 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home.
1: We were pitching out the episode where, uh, with the witch, the body in the basement, and we uh, um, <laughs> I wish I could tell you. I can tell you exactly what happened. I don't know where this comes from, but we were. Um, we decided it should be a company called uh, "I'll Do Anything for a Buck," because who else would do this? And and I just said it should be three brothers, and I think their names should be Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. And I remember everybody sort of just fell apart in the room. And then, whereas everyone was asking, so "You know, like where did that come from?" I don't know. I said, "It's just it's just on the at the moment." There was something about Vermont that I said. These backwoods guys, I said, they're basically three brothers sharing one brain, and Larry has most of it. Um, and they, there was a big concern on um, the part of the network and a big concern, frankly, on the part of Arthur Price, when he read the script. He said, you know, I don't know if this is going to play. I don't know if Bob's going to like this. And um, I said, really? Because I said, it seems really funny to me. But I said, you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays. And um, <coughs> Bob came in for the table reading and just quietly comes up to me before the reading. And he goes, this is really funny. And I went, well, if he thinks it's funny, he'll know how to play opposite them. And they, again, they ended up being those characters that he, he didn't have to say anything, he could just look at them. Um, and they, it was a lot of fun writing them, because they were pretty outrageous. And, you know, it became a... The names Larry Darrell <laughs> became uh, uh, synonymous with something. I'm not sure exactly what, but uh, you saw them everywhere. I remember somebody sending me something from a 4-H exhibit, and they'd named pigs Larry, Daryl, and Daryl, and it it touched a chord somewhere with people. And why the decision to not have them talk, and how did that affect your writing for them? Well, actually, uh, it made it easy. (laughs) There's two actors that you didn't have to supply lines for. you know, I don't know. I mean, we start. Larry was the ringleader, and it just seemed funny that the two of them were mute. It, not that they—you never got the sense that they couldn't talk. It's just that they didn't talk, and they—they uh, uh, they became this very funny visual joke. The casting them was interesting because we didn't know what we were looking for, so we we just guys kept coming in trying to look. Strange and it sort of wouldn't work and uh, you know, and then these guys individually came in and There seemed to be something so naturally strange and of course none of them were who they appeared to be um, You know Tony Papenfuss is just a terrific actor and was doing Shakespeare and then would show up and be one of the Daryls, but um yeah, so that, that was, I mean, the casting was sort of fun, because we didn't, we, not knowing exactly what you're looking for, you could sort of be more open, but we knew that they had to be, they had to believe those characters, and God, they, you know, they would have fought you if you tried to give them a line. They would have said, no, we can't talk, you know, we, that's not who we are. They, they liked, they loved being physical. Hi, I'm Larry, this is my brother Daryl, that's my other brother Daryl. <laughs> Uh, how are you doing? Oh, okay, except I throwed my back out last week crawling under a house. Sounds like a tough job. Wasn't a job, I just like crawling under houses.
0: <laughs> I ran this clip of Barry Kemp, executive producer of Newhart, discussing the formation of Larry, Daryl, and Daryl on the show, and the subsequent opening salvo of the three brothers. It's extremely tough to take bizarro characters acting insane when they think they're perfectly normal and have them interact with normal people. Dozens and dozens of shows on TV over the years have fit that bill. With a straight face, the weirdos are tolerated. Arnie Doers. Arnie Doers inherited the Doers Lumber Company in Hamilton. He's seen around town with a cigarette in his mouth, whether standing by the inflammable gas pumps at the gas station, or maybe tossing a cigarette into a pile of dried wood chips at his lumberyard. He always tells people that they worry too much. The ignitable Hamilton Fletcher runs the town, his business, and the college with an iron fist, and isn't afraid to voice his dictatorial opinion on any subject at any time and Bucky further establishes his character by being an ass at the basketball game, telling Jones how to run his team. This is Robert P. Fitton traveling along in the Doers lumber truck. The stage is set to find the murderer. Episode 2 of The Strange Death of Dr. Povich begins now. Chapter 6 The noise in the rectory parking lot shook Gallagher. He sprang from the recliner. Followed Jones through the foyer and out the front door. Jones was certain the metallic crash was not a car accident. The outside air was cold and the stars were bright. Jones ran along the porch and leaped the balustrade into the snowbank. With both legs firmly entrenched in the snow, he checked the frozen rectory parking lot. He focused on the blue dumpster under the parking lot's telephone pole lamp. What do you think? Asked Gallagher from the porch. I think my legs are freezing. He extricated himself from the snow and stomped his shoes in the parking lot. Gallagher remained on the porch as Jones crossed the packed snow and moved under the overhead halogen lamp. Fresh work boot prints were pressed into the snow around the dumpster. A trail led through the snowbank and across the yard directly behind the church. Someone was back here in that dumpster. Jones rubbed his hands together in the frigid air. He grasped the dumpster's metal handle, yanked the cover upward, and slammed it into the rear of the dumpster. Something moved in the rubbish inside. His heart thumped, and he jumped back. Bucky Driscoll's head emerged from a trash mound. He spread open a pile of gray and white trash bags. Hey, fancy meeting you here, Coach. What the hell are you doing here, Bucky? He stared at the campus security cop for at least ten seconds and wondered what possessed him to crawl into a trash bin. No, no, don't tell me. You were looking for evidence, right? Hey, how did you guess? Bucky asked, standing. A piece of wet pizza was pasted on his trousers. I'm alive today to live another day. I know, I know. I heard the scenario. You propped up the cover, leaned inside, and then the cover fell on you. But you thought you needed to hide because of the noise. Hey, brilliant. Your powers of deduction, Matthias, are unmatched. Muriel always says you're brilliant. Muriel's your sister. Right. You see, I feel a personal responsibility to gather said evidence and generally investigate the crime since I was there when Dr. P died. Gallagher called from the porch. Everything all right, Matthias? Well, that's a loaded question, Jim. Yes, everything is okay. As Gallagher moved back inside the rectory, Jones turned to Bucky, still standing in the dumpster. Bucky, get out of there. Bucky reached out, Jones grabbed his hand, and a mushy, cold mess slithered through his fingers. Oh, sorry there, coach. (laughs) What's this? Uh, Pizza. Oh, great. He pulled Bucky out and crunched his teeth. Then he wiped his hands clean with his handkerchief. Bucky, you're in charge of campus security. You really should stay out of this. But it's murder. How do you know it's murder? What proof do you have? Ah, it's all inside the helmet, he said, pointing at his head. Jones exhaled a short, steamy breath like a blowtorch flame. Helmet? Bucky's crooked teeth formed an odd smile, and then he pointed again to his temple. The Povich case is locked up here. I know murder when I see it, and Dr. P suffered from the effects of poisoning. How'd you come up with that? Bucky adjusted his glasses and spread his feet apart. He hit Jones' wrist. Someone jabbed a needle into his butt. Jones rolled his eyes. Listen, I think maybe you should just back off. Don't get yourself into trouble. Your job is campus security. Yeah, and you're a coach. I have more right being involved in this than you do. You do not do so. You do not do so. Bucky, I frankly don't know what evidence you're looking for, said Jones. A Prince William police cruiser crunched the snow in front of the rectory. Ah, here come the blue boys. Bucky adjusted his glasses and raised his fingers. See, the cops knew there was trouble here last Tuesday night. I've had experience in the law enforcement area. Jones shook his head and started moving forward, but Bucky trailed behind. What's your experience? Directing traffic? Been there, done that. See, I heard about the argument between the priest and Dr. P. I ain't stupid, I got ears. I think we'll find the gun right back inside one of them pizza boxes. I thought you said it was a needle. Maybe one of those tranquilizing guns. Modified, of course. Jones shook his head, but his heart beat faster when homicide detective Kevin Phillips stepped from the cruiser with two plainclothes cops. Despite the cold weather, Phillips did not wear a hat or coat. He did not see Jones as he moved onto the front porch. Gallagher really did not have a convincing story. Jones headed for the back door. I knew this would happen. See, I have an ultra sense about these things, said Bucky. They're going to arrest the priest, and once they find the gun, he's had it. He'll fry. He'll get the chair. Bucky, shut up. Where's your car anyways? Can't find it, can you? Bucky grinned as he leaned closer and whispered, ''On the back street, I know how to conduct an undercover investigation.'' Jones was more concerned about Gallagher and what Phillips might ask him. He hurried up the back walk and quickly opened the storm door. Once in the kitchen, he removed his sneakers as the front bell rang. Bucky entered the kitchen, tracked huge chunks of snow across the kitchen tiles, and was about to step on Gallagher's plush white rug. ''Bucky, take off your boots, will you?'' ''Oh, yeah!'' The bell rang again as Jones started down the hallway to the foyer. Phillips and the two policemen were visible through the glass sidelights. Jones looked into the parlor, but he did not see Gallagher. Bucky squeezed awkwardly by him, shaking the antique ceramic Chinese vases in the hall. I can handle the blue boys. Kevin is a personal friend, said Jones. He pointed at the rotund Bucky, his glasses foggy and campus security stamped across his brown coat. This is serious business. I understand law enforcement. Just shut up, will you? Jones leaned into the parlor. Jim, where are you? The police are here. Want me to go find him? Jones creased his brow. I thought I told you to take off your boots. The bell rang again. Jones shook his head. I'm answering the door, father. Bucky shot by him and yanked open the front door. The youthful Phillips tilted his head and then looked at Jones. Bucky fumbled with the storm door. Ah, that door is stuck. Oh, don't force it, said Jones. He moved toward Bucky but glanced into the empty parlor. Jim, I need you out here. Bucky gripped the handle and then looked at Jones. That's ah, it's jammed. Jones pursed his lips and reached for the handle, easily opening the door. He held the door for Phillips. How are you, Kevin? Matthias, he said, looking at Bucky briefly. Is Father uh, Gallagher in? Well, he was just here. Jones turned to the parlor and the other two men stepped inside and closed the storm door. Father, the police are here. I'll track him down, said Bucky as he rumbled into the parlor. Who the hell is he? Campus security at Hamilton, said Jones, now for the first time wondering if Gallagher had left the rectory. A sudden crash in the parlor sent Jones scurrying through the doorway. Bucky had tripped on one of Gallagher's TV trays, sending several magazines in the wooden tray across the rug. He sat upright and looked at Jones. Nope, he ain't here. Of course he's here. Jim! yelled Jones in a louder voice. "'Jim, Kevin Phillips from Homicide is here!' "'Homicide!' asked Bucky, struggling to his feet. "'See? I knew it! I have an ability to sense trouble!' "'Yeah, you have an ability to make trouble, too!' Jones gave him a stern look, and Bucky pretended to button his lip. "'I was just talking to him, Kevin. I suppose you're here about Dr. Povich?' Phillips nodded. "'Bucky, go upstairs and get Father Gallagher!' "'10-4!' Phillips grinned at the other men as Bucky sidestepped into the foyer and then barreled up the front stairs. New no assistant, Matthias? I have nothing to do with this guy. He just keeps turning up like a bad penny. Clayton says they found that drug, the betalol hydrochloride, in Povich's stomach. Phillips turned from the stairs and the smile left his face. Odd, huh? Considering that he wasn't on the drug and it was prescribed for hypertension, I want to know who else dined with him and what their relationship was to Dr. Povich. Jones cringed when he thought about Gallagher dining alone and actually preparing the meal, but he presently said nothing. I need to talk to the cooks, housekeepers, whoever was here on Tuesday afternoon. Kevin, the bottom line is Father Gallagher would not poison Povich. Phillips shrugged his shoulders. Stranger things have happened, but like I say, Father Gallagher is only part of the puzzle here. Jones looked outside. George Strickland was proceeding at a good clip up the front walk. He climbed the porch stairs and opened the storm door and stepped into the crowded foyer. George? Ah, the gang's all here. Yeah, everyone except Father Gallagher, said Bucky, holding his notepad as he bounded down the front stairs. When he saw Bucky, Strickland squinted and looked as if he were ready to step into the ring. Jones was aware how dozens of times Bucky had crossed the line between campus security and official police investigations. Strickland whispered in Jones's ear, What the hell is he doing here? I thought you might need some assistance, George. You brought him over here? Jones smiled and shook his head. No, no, it's a long story. Jones, half awake near midnight, sat in the parlor chair. Gallagher's long black car remained in the garage and his coat, hat, and gloves in the foyer closet. Phillips had quickly obtained a search warrant, and for the past few hours, Strickland and the two officers helped him search the rectory. After an hour of irrelevant questions and wild theories about Povich's death, Strickland threw Bucky out of the house. Jones still believed Gallagher to be innocent, but was at a loss to why his friend would flee. The mantel clock chimed 12 times as he checked his small notepad. Tomorrow he needed to talk with Fred Dempsey and learn about Povich's private and professional life. He would also travel to Professor McIntyre's office at the art department. Her trying to halt the autopsy required a good explanation. As he sat back in the chair, he thought about the call he had just received on his cell phone from Woozy. Duff Davis had refused to take a blood test. Because of his close relationship with Povich and Povich's knowledge of his drug habit, Jones questioned whether Duff was threatened by Povich's awareness of his problem. Duff would lose his scholarship if he were thrown off the team for drug usage. Matthias, Jones looked up at Strickland. I think we're all done here. Jones nodded. you find anything? I don't know yet. We went through the dumpster. I have potato skins. I have pieces of pork and applesauce. Well... Jones said standing, he tucked his pad in his pocket. Are you saying that your buddy Bucky was on to something in the trash? Matthias, the guy was looking for a tranquilizer gun. Did he really fall inside that dumpster? Yeah, Bucky Driscoll, what a piece of work. Strickland's dark eyes opened wide as they moved into the foyer. Don't even get me started on Bucky Driscoll. Threatening to shoot him was a little much, George. Who was threatening? He left, didn't he, on foot? I guess his car was around the block. Yeah, he probably went back to the college to hand out parking tickets. Phillips was back in the kitchen with a priest from another parish and Gallagher's housekeeper. He turned to Jones. Where do you think he is? Jones pushed his lips together. Matthias, you know where he is. I don't know where he is. You followed the path through the backyard. As soon as Jones got in his Jeep, you would place a call to Coco Stefani. Although involved in questionable activities and always evading Herbert Lane's office, Coco was also a large contributor to Hamilton College, to St. Bart's, and a personal friend of Jim Gallagher. It was rumored that he had funded most of the church's renovation. Locating Coco would be the logical choice for Gallagher. Father Gallagher wouldn't poison anybody. Strickland looked at both men, while Polvich's last meal was here. He didn't do it, George! Excuse us. Strickland pulled him back into the parlor. Matthias, both you and I know he hated Povich. I called Professor McIntyre on the way over. Well, I don't have to speculate as to what she said. She tried to stop Clayton from looking at the body. So what? I want to know where she was Tuesday afternoon. Was she anywhere near this rectory? Oh, come on. Strickland shook his head as he returned to the kitchen. Phillips and the two officers had moved into the hall. We're going to have that dumpster stuff analyzed. I'm sure anything incriminating is long gone. Jones picked up his parker and faced Phillips. You have anything new, Kevin? Nothing to add. The housekeeper said she left her soap opera just like Gallagher told you. She did corroborate what Gallagher said about calling Povich to set up the dinner a couple of weeks ago. Jones nodded and put on his parker. Listen, I'm going to tell you guys this one more time. Gallagher didn't do this. I don't know why he took off, but he didn't kill Povich. Who besides Gallagher would want to? asked Phillips. Look, I know he's your friend and your priest. Again, who else would want to kill Povich? Doesn't have to be someone who wanted to kill Povich, Kevin. It could be someone who needed to kill Povich. Chapter 7 The cold afternoon campus air stung Jones's face. He planned to relax at home for a few hours before basketball practice in the gym later that afternoon. A few minutes ago, he had visited Tammy Welch at the dorm. She was in good spirits, even though she had broken her ankle and could not cheer at the games. He smiled, but his thoughts swirled around the Povich murder. On the return drive to Hamilton last night, he had tried to reach Coco Stefani. Repeatedly, Coco's cell phone would not connect, and the lackeys at his Prince William apartment house on East Crescent Street claimed they had not seen him. Nor was he at Club Max and Prince William. Earlier in the day, a short conversation with Duff Davis sent Jones's temper surging. He chastised Duff for not leveling with him about the drug problem, and cautioned Duff his scholarship was in jeopardy. Duff said nothing, until Jones brought up the Povich relationship. Duff warned Jones to mind his own business and hung up a few moments later. Jones was still baffled as to why Gallagher had fled. Whether he had denied the facts or just refused to believe Gallagher was incapable of murder, Jones's anguish about the Povich murder was building. He hurried along Main Street as Arnie Dewis' large lumber truck, yellow light spinning above the cab, plowed the side snowbanks. Arnie beeped the horn wildly as if he were in a parade. Jones raised his hand to wave and a sheet of snow and slush whipped against his parker and face. He wiped the cold mess off his skin. Arnie's hand, cigarette clamped between his fingers, stuck out the side window. The truck sideswiped something in the road, producing a loud crash but kept traveling up Main Street. Jones shook his head. Thanks a lot, Arnie. He pushed his picket fence gate toward the shoveled snow and headed up the walk. As he turned back toward the snow-covered town Common, he considered for the first time Gallagher might have committed the murder. Povich's death was designed to be masked as a heart attack, and without an autopsy, it would have appeared as the latest cardiac malfunction in a long line of medical problems. He opened his front door and removed his boots on the mat. The answering machine light flashed on the kitchen counter. He unbuttoned his parker and hung it on the brass rack next to the door. But as he looked back at the machine again, he feared Gallagher was in custody. He reluctantly crossed the kitchen and pushed the playback button. As the machine activated, his heartbeat accelerated. Matthias, this is Hamilton Fletcher. It's imperative that you call either my office number at the plant in Prince William, or my phone at the estate. Jones stared at the machine. He poured some milk into his orange mug and set it in the microwave. Then he dialed the Fletcher estate. He briefly spoke with Hollings, Hamilton Fletcher's butler, and waited for Hamilton to pick up the third floor jacuzzi phone. In his head Jones weighed the facts since last Tuesday afternoon. Gallagher's motive was hatred, but Jones could not fathom Gallagher actually plotting Povich's demise. Nothing except revenge was gained by his killing Povich, and Gallagher, from all the years Jones had known him, would not be so stupid. Gallagher had a quick temper, but he would not make so blatant a blunder. Why was Elsie McIntyre so adamant about stopping the autopsy? Matthias, this is Hamilton Fletcher. Yes, Hamilton, how are you?
2: Well, I'm fine, thank you. I've just been briefed by Chief Strickland on the Povich matter. And I must say I'm quite distressed about the implications for the school. I have already, or I should say, my secretary has received requests for comments to two Boston radio stations. They're airing a report tonight, and I've been led to believe they actually have a remote broadcast from the observatory on the 6 o'clock news.
0: Well, I hadn't heard that. Jones wiggled his toes around his stocking feet and placed them near the baseboard heat. The thought of Annie Dewis in the truck would not go away.
2: Reference that one of our most prestigious professors has been murdered is unacceptable. Ham and I, as well as Nigel Kent and the board, have concluded in a meeting that the mystery of Dr. Povich's death must be wrapped up quickly. I know you're close to
0: Father Jim Gallagher from Prince William. Sir, I don't think Father Gallagher killed Povich. I suggest you listen to the TV and read the
2: headlines. Priests on the run. Church deals with murder. They even had a bishop from the Roman Catholic Church on every channel. Dr. Povich's dealings with the Elton Foundation are now being investigated. From what I gather, a deal might have been made to exclude the money from St. Bartholomew's renovation, which would tie in with
0: motivation for murder. I beg your pardon, Hamilton, but Jim couldn't have killed Povich
2: any resource you might need to find the truth. I don't want the school connected in any way to this Elton controversy. I just pray Povich didn't bribe them.
0: First and foremost is getting the murder off the front pages. I understand, said Jones. His toes were now toasty warm on the heater. Do we have any names of the people at the Elton Foundation? Ham does. One moment, please. Jones checked the green digits on the microwave. Maybe Gallagher had knowledge of a bribe or a deal made between Povich and the Foundation. Ham's younger voice came on a speakerphone. Hello, Matthias. Hi, Ham. I saw the game. Maybe I should refund your admission price, asked Jones with a chuckle.
2: Well, they tried. What happened to Duff Davis? He always
0: had double digits. Well, uh, Duff has been off. Jones was not about to tell Ham about Duff's drug problem. He worried about Duff being in Prince William at the time Povich was poisoned. Dad wanted me to give you Kenneth Colby's name.
2: Colby is the chairman of the allocation board at the Elton Foundation. We need somebody we can trust to look into this. If there was an impropriety, we need to handle this from a public relations standpoint.
0: Who do you think killed Povich? I don't know, but I don't think it was Gallagher.
2: It seems like Gallagher, according to the media.
0: I know that on, Matthias. Both my father and I don't want the school's reputation tarnished in any way. Any monetary advances you need, just call me. I will, Ham. Thank you. Did you ask campus security to help you on this Povich matter? A quick jolt stung Jones' stomach. Bucky Driscoll.
2: He has repeatedly called my father. Very boisterous, almost arrogant.
0: I have not asked Bucky Driscoll to help anyone. Good.
2: We'll have a little talk with Nigel about him. Again, anything you
0: need, please call. I will, Ham. I'll talk to you. Jones hung up the phone as the microwave sounded. He removed the cup and took some chocolate powder from the cupboard shelf. Bucky sitting neck deep in Gallagher's dumpster flashed into his thoughts. He shook his head and he sprinkled the chocolate into the cup and stirred it slowly. A warm, soothing sweetness filled his mouth. He set down the cup and rubbed his hands. His pants were still wet from Arnie's splashing, but the call from the Fletches added to the pressure. He had planned to take a break before basketball practice, but now he had the compulsion to get back on campus and talk to both Duff and Elsie McIntyre. Jones, gripping another cup of hot chocolate, stepped from his Jeep and into the parking lot. Woozy's station wagon zoomed along the snow-covered field beyond Hamilton Street. Jones sidestepped Woozy, turned into the lot, and the exhaust trail dissipated into the thin air. He parked next to Jones's Jeep, opened the car door, and carried a green and white athletic bag toward Jones. Well, what do you hear there, Matthias? All oh, the Fletchers are all revved up now, Wooz. He sipped the hot chocolate and started toward the gym door. Did you hear about Duff? What about him? Jones put his key in the door, and the two men stepped inside the warmer locker room. Still refused the blood test. Oh, great. Which means Povich did have something on him. Povich no? Yeah, keep it under your hat. Well, Povich was fully aware Duff had a drug problem. Listen, that kid has a full scholarship here. If that got out, he'd be all done. Jones threw a newspaper on his office desk. An official college portrait of Povich, taken when his hair was less gray, was centered on the front page. He quickly perused the accompanying article. Nothing was said about the murder and centered more on Povich's life and professional achievements. Authored twenty five books on astronomy. The current text is used at Hamilton College, leaves his companion LC McIntyre. You know anything about her, Woozy? Woozy hung up his coat and thought for a second. Now nah, she has a pretty open classroom you show up and you get an A. Well that's ridiculous. If we had that attitude, we'd never win. Sounds like Coach Larson. Well, Lark Larson isn't coach here anymore. I'm beginning to wonder if we will win this year, said Woozy with a grin. Look, Woozy, these boys just need some momentum. Jones flipped the paper. A quote from Fred Dempsey said that he owed his career to Dr. Povich and mourned his loss. You know, Fred would know about McIntyre. So would McIntyre. Why don't you just go over there? You're right. Jones nodded and walked back to the filing cabinet. He reached for his schedule book as the phone rang. "'Coach's office,' answered Woozy. He rolled his eyes and looked at Jones. "'Yes, Bucky.' Jones raised his palms and shook his head as he whispered, "'I'm not here.' "'Well, well, I'll see him, Bucky. I'll tell him you called.' Woozy held out the receiver and furrowed his brow. "'You what?' "'I know you're head of security. Yes, Bucky. I know you've had years of experience. I will tell him, sure.' I'm sure he'll appreciate your assistance. Jones moved closer to his assistant coach as he hung up the phone. That man is dangerous. Bucky? Klutz. Boob. Knucklehead. What did he want? Wants to work with you in solving the Povich thing. Jones fell back in his chair and opened the schedule book. Thanks for covering. I think even without Duff, we might have a chance against St. Pat's. I need to talk with Duff, Woozy. The kid needs help, obviously. And he is a suspect. That is exactly right. Chapter 8 Before leaving for Professor McIntyre's office in Wyndham Hall, Jones stuck his head out the open gymnasium door and fit his acrylic stocking cap over his head. He panned the full front parking lot as a few students crossed the quadrangle at the end of the campus. With no sign of Bucky's little car, he stepped outside and started briskly over the compacted snow. Back at the office, he had tried reaching Duff's Storm, but the line kept ringing. Short, steamy bursts of air pushed from his mouth as he trudged between the high snowbanks and onto the campus sidewalk. For a moment, he thought of using his cell to call Coco Stefani again. Coco might have knowledge of Gallagher's whereabouts. Povich was dead three and a half days, and Jones was bothered by a rising sense of frustration. He gazed through the bare maple branches at a blue cloudless sky. His first question to Elsie McIntyre would center on her trying to stop Povich's autopsy. Her fear about Povich's body being opened for inspection might have some validity, but Jones suspected there was something more. He shuffled along a snow-buried stone wall near the history building. Even the building's coupler and the weather vane were blasted with snow and sharp icicles pointed downward from the gutters. Getting access to Povich's finances might give Jones a better picture of to what McIntyre might stand to gain. Deep inside his parker, his cell phone produced a muffled ring. He dug down with his gloves, finally removing the phone. Jones! Jonesy, it's Coco. Coco, I've been trying to get you since last night that business to attend to. Besides, they just got the message to me. What's up? Don't you read the papers? Dr. Sergey Povich is dead. Well, good. What do you mean, good? Jones continued walking, moving the phone under his stocking cap. The long brick art building was visible through the knoll and a cluster of birches. He was a world-famous astronomer.
2: Yeah? Well, he ripped that money off from Gallagher. I suppose you
0: need me for something few passing students turned when Jones raised his voice. Need you? The guy was poisoned, probably at St. Bart's Rectory, and Gallagher is gone.
2: Ah, no shit. You think Gallagher did it, huh?
0: Jones sneered the shovel path to the art building. He started up the salted incline. Don't play dumb with me, Coco. Hey, he hated Povich, Jonesy. You know it and I know it. Maybe he did do it. Do you know where he is?
2: I don't know nothing.
0: I need to find him, Coco, before he goes off the deep end. More than that, he may have other information. Okay, I'll see what I can do. I'll call you. Thanks. Jones put the phone back in his parker. He opened the old wire mesh glass door. Inside, the pipes rattled and hissed as he stepped onto the worn stairs. This is one of the older buildings on campus, and it smelled like a janitor's supply closet. Jones removed his hat and stuffed his gloves in the Parker pocket as he climbed toward the second floor. In the campus book listing the faculty, McIntyre's office was in 259. He passed brightly colored and quite odd murals painted on the smooth stair plaster, but classical music spilled into the long corridor when he reached the second floor. He did not think much of it till he approached McIntyre's office. He lingered near a long cork bulletin board outside. The symphony's serenade shook the walls and he was about to step inside her office when his phone rang again. He quickly retraced his steps down the hall and whispered into the phone, Jones. Bias. this is Kevin. We can't locate Gallagher. Have you had any luck? No, I haven't. Listen, if you contact him, please try and get him to turn himself in. Things have gotten out of control here. Kevin. Father Gallagher didn't kill Povich. It's that simple. Track down your father's killer and put the guy in jail. Nobody knows that, Kevin, except you and Coco. Let's keep it that way. People know they start thinking you're Sherlock Holmes. My lips are sealed, Jonesy. Oh, funny. Now what about Povich? Other people talked in the background. He figured Phillips was in the Prince William police station. I just left Clayton Morris's office. The lab analyzed everything we brought in from the dumpster. They found no traces of the drug, nothing. And that doesn't make any sense. Ah, oh, damn. Jones leaned against the plaster wall as the music from McIntyre's office filled the hall. He stared at his boots and the melted snow on the old wood floor and shook his head. I just can't believe Jim would do this. Doesn't look good. Father Gallagher and Herbert are good friends, but Herbert wants him booked. "'Oh, Herbert would book his own mother if it made the papers,' Jones turned from the office. "'What about Elsie McIntyre?' "'I talked to her briefly.' "'Oh?' "'She's grief-stricken.' "'Jones looked toward the office. What did she say?' "'I told her about the labetalol hydrochloride, and she has no idea who would want to poison Povich. "'I asked her directly whether she did it.' "'And?' "'She said she was on her way to an art show all afternoon in Massachusetts.' George Strickland called down there, she arrived around 5.30. And I know what you said about Duff Davis and Povich's knowledge of his problem. George and I have both tried his dorm room. So have I. I have a sworn statement. He claims he was in his dorm that afternoon when the poisoning took place. No witnesses, he was just adamant about not being linked with Povich's murder. He had good things to say about Povich, but when I brought up the subject of the pills, he seemed agitated. I'm not surprised. ''You really think this kid would kill Povich?'' asked Phillips. His scholarship would vanish if word got out about his drug problem. Jones wandered toward the music, replete with violins and a flute refrain. ''Maybe he knows something. Maybe Fred Dempsey knows where he is.''
2: ''Oh yes,
0: Professor Dempsey. I talked to him in his office. He says he wants to carry on Povich's work. He had a mess of computer discs for his book. I wondered why he was using Povich's notes so readily.'' the thing didn't point to Gallagher, I'd look more closely at Dempsey. Fred Dempsey? Asked Jones, holding out the phone as he moved back up the hall. Kevin, Fred is benign, and he isn't a killer either. We're all killers given the right circumstances, Matthias. Let's just say he lifted some of Povich's notes. What notes? He's using Povich's notes on the computer disk for the work he's been doing. Then I'm sure he'll note Povich as the source. Look, Kevin. Fred is accomplished in his own right, said Jones, but inwardly he was starting to think about what Phillips had just said. I'll talk to him. I believe he was teaching a class on Tuesday afternoon. Find Gallagher, Kevin. People on the run do strange things and put themselves at risk when they're cornered. Okay, Matthias, I have to go. Stay in touch. I will, Kevin. Jones clicked off the phone and scurried toward the office door. He leaned around the corner. The wispy blonde Elsie McIntyre wore a white cable-knit sweater and a red turtleneck. She wrote furiously at her desk. As the music resonated from two speakers positioned along the brightly painted green walls, Jones knocked on the doorframe and then cleared his throat several times. Although he was ready to question her, he kept wondering about Fred Dempsey having Povich's notes on the computer. McIntyre looked up. She stared at Jones for a few moments and then turned in the chair. She twisted the knob on the CD player, and the music reached a more appropriate level. Oh, Coach Jones, I figured I'd be hearing from you. You were with Sergi when he died. Oh, I don't want to intrude. No, no, not at all. She put down her pen and stood. Jones moved inside. She was taller than he had remembered, maybe 5'8 or 5'9, as tall as Povich. She shook his hand and returned to her seat. Please, uh, make yourself comfortable. Yes, uh, thank you. Jones passed elaborate gold-framed paintings. Some looked original. I appreciate your seeing me, and I'm sorry about Dr. Povich. Everyone says they're sorry, but they all want to know if I killed Sergi. Her voice was smooth, articulate, almost snooty. And you want to know if I poisoned Sergi because that is the prevailing theory right now. The answer is no. I was at a Worcester Art exhibition when he died. And as to Sergi's being poisoned, it's difficult to believe that Father Gallagher, even though his animosity for Sergi was well known, would carry it to this extreme and poison him. I'm a personal friend of Jim Gallagher. There's no way Sergi had every right to that Elton money. The church did not have a lock on the funds. Father Gallagher was most arrogant during the competition for the funds. Do you know Kenneth Colby? Oh, why no? Who's Kenneth Colby? You don't? He heads the board at the Elton Foundation, said Jones. Oh, what does he say about Father Gallagher? What do you say about him? Hardly the behavior for a priest, wouldn't you say? She asked, and she sat down again. Such hatred against Sergi. We, Sergi, won that money fair and square. Jones felt as though he was having an audience with the Queen. Tell me about that money. How did Dr. Povich persuade the people from the Elton Foundation to change their minds? Sergi was a gifted and brilliant man. He could be most charming. I remember how he logically and sincerely presented his case. I didn't get involved in the details. Her blue eyes were fixed, and she enunciated every word. They were convinced, according to Sergi, because of the practical use of their money. Jones studied her face, looking for any insincerity or change in body position. She sat upright as if she were at a girls' finishing school. Sergei Povich made the plea, and they all agreed. Yes, this is true, Jones nodded. You were together for some time. Eight years. How did you meet? McIntyre smiled and folded her hands on the desk. I must say that question does not reflect the usual line of questioning from the police and campus security. Jones tightened his brow and eyes. Campus security? Why would campus security be questioning you? Oh, a droll little man with irrelevant questions. Jones imagined Bucky in her office, metal clipboard with notepad drawn and his stomach protruding from a security uniform. He has no official capacity in this investigation. Do you? Well, I was there, and I had worked with the police on occasion. Mr. Driscoll said he had the full backing of the police department. Jones winced. I don't think that's accurate. I must say, his continual barrage of questions was quite unnerving. I failed to see how the name of my cat and whether I followed drag car racing had any relevance to this investigation. He shouldn't be questioning you about anything. Jones scrawled out his cell phone number on his notepad and handed it to her. Please call me if he comes back. Thank you. I guess I have a question about Dr. Povich's finances. You mean, will I personally gain from his death, she asked, sitting upright again. Mr. Driscoll didn't ask me that question. The answer is I stand to gain a half a million dollars. Sergi made a considerable sum of money from his textbooks and articles. Thank you for being up front. Did he control that money? Yes, I knew very little about how Sergi used his money. He was from the old school, stockpile it away and not tell anybody where it was located. "'I've been rummaging through the bank books and stocks.' Jones nodded and jotted down the information onto his notepad. "'And you were in his will, then?' "'Sure,' she yawned. "'I get the whole ball of wax, if that's what you're asking.' Jones nodded. He was still flummoxed by Bucky being up there questioning McIntyre. "'What about Dr. Povich's health? "'I thought I had lost him last winter, but he came out of it sharp as ever.' Defied the experts, Sergi's heart problems were complicated by the flu and resulting pneumonia. How did he get the flu? Excuse me? How did he get the flu? asked Jones. How does one ever get the flu? She turned and shut off the CD player. I have a class at 10.30. So you were at an art show in Massachusetts at the time he dined with Father Gallagher? Yes, the Hoffman exhibit in Worcester. I arrived at approximately 4.45. Please keep me informed of your progress, Mr. Jones. I will. Jones put away his pad. He stood when she stood. Thanks for talking to me. Anytime. She grasped his hand again. Her wet eyes reflected fatigue and an obvious strain. We are having a service next month. Please feel free to attend. Next month? Yes. uh, Sergi's ashes will be scattered over the Ukraine by then. I would be happy to attend. Thank you. As he turned, Jones was struck by the wall paintings. Are these original paintings? McIntyre seemed taken aback that he had not left. Oh, God, no. These are copies of paintings I've acquired. Any paintings of value are fully alarmed back at my house. Jones smiled. I wondered why these would be right out in the open. You'll have to excuse me. I'm not an art connoisseur. One of my closest friends teaches in the business department. She said the exact same thing years ago, and she was probably right. But over the years, she has become quite the art critic and a student of art history. So there's hope for me yet. I think so. Jones grinned, but he was questioning how she could afford original paintings. He thanked her one more time, and then as he left the office, she again asked him to stop Bucky from pestering her. In the corridor, he veered toward the stairwell. Maybe Povich had simply purchased the paintings. He had the money. Jones scampered down the stairs and pushed open the outside door. As he put on his stocking cap, Bucky's little security car chugged past the physical plant's billowing smoke. Jones shook his head as he thought for a moment about chasing the car before it reached Hamilton Street, but Bucky turned and started back toward the gym. Oh, no. The scene at the observatory road flashed into his thoughts. He pictured Bucky breaking Fred Dempsey's headlight with a sledgehammer. Bucky Driscoll. Chapter 9 Many of the students passing between classes acknowledged him as he walked quickly along the shoveled walkways. Bucky's car turned at the corner behind the administration building and started up Hamilton Street. Jones looked deliberately away and jogged through the cold air toward the gym. McIntyre, although very well spoken, remained a suspect. Her inheriting Povich's money did not bother Jones as much as her denying having control over the assets. The purchase of original paintings seemed very unusual. He opened the gym doors and took the side corridor to his office. Woozy was speaking with several students just returning from gym class. Mathias, is here. Who? Duff, he's getting dressed in the second locker room. Good. Jones threw his hat and parker on his office chair. Then he moved through the first locker room. Duff faced the locker and was tying his sneakers. Duff. Duff finished nodding up the sneakers. I have nothing to say, coach. Jones moved closer. Duff, I want to help. Help? Who can help me now? I'm finished, coach. It's all over. It's going to come out now. Listen, we can help you. Get you to a treatment center. Duff moved around the benches. No. Wait. I have nothing to say, Coach. Nothing. Whether Jones chased after him depended on whether he was truly a suspect. Jones had no cogent argument, but his intuition took over as he followed Duff through the locker room. Okay. Where were you during the last two hours before I picked you up the other night? What is this? The Inquisition or something? Maybe it is. Jones was loud enough for the other students to turn their heads. I told you I was at the mall in Prince William and I was going to meet a girl. I have given a sworn deposition to Lieutenant Phillips of the Prince William Police Department. I know what's going on here. You think I killed Dr. Povich. You can prove nothing, Coach. If Dr. Povich was poisoned, then I'm sorry. Who was the girl? Duff turned and headed toward the gymnasium door. Woozy put his index finger over his mouth as the rest of the students gawked at him. Jones quickly returned to his office, closed the door, and picked up the phone. Woozy followed him inside and shut the door. Matthias, don't you think you're a little hard on him? Jones held the receiver and walked around the desk. Hard on him? I should be yanking him off the court right now. I have no direct proof, but I could produce a great lawsuit against the college. He may have killed Povich, for all I know. Who are you calling? I'm calling Nigel. As Dean of Students, let him handle it. Get the lawyers involved, if need be. The Fletchers won't like this. I should have sensed what was going on here. Let Nigel bring it to the board. Let him require the drug testing. I'm going to put the onus on this kid. He kept this whole thing from me. Sounds like that's upsetting you more than the drug problem. Well, maybe it is, said Jones as the line rang. Dean's office. This is Matthias Jones. I need to speak with Dean Kent. Jones rolled his eyes. Tell him Matthias call. It's important that he call me back. Who is this? This is Matthias Jones. Who are you? Where's Grace? I am just a temporary. Grace is sick. Please tell him to reach me on my cellular phone. What was your name again? Jones stared at the phone, shook his head, and lowered the receiver. This isn't my day, Woozy. He dialed the astronomy department and sat on the desk as the line rang. Dust being in Prince William troubled him. But risking everything because of a scholarship was unlikely. How could he become angry enough to poison Povich? Hello? Yes, this is Matthias Jones. I'd like to speak with Fred Dempsey. Coach, this is Roger Gilman. I think uh, Fred has left the building. Great. I need to know where... Team's in a slop, huh? Said Gilman. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. Yup. Here's what I'd do if I were coaching the team. I'd use Davis underneath
2: more. Let him drive, drive that baby home.
0: Yeah, well, I'll consider that, Roger. Does Fred have a class?
2: Yes, I think he did. He should be getting over
0: soon, and then he'll be heading up to his office at the observatory. Something about collating data from the computer. Oh, really? And you really should try and control yourself along the sidelines, Coach. I would sit quietly and let your team play ball. "'Wonderful! Goodbye!' Jones set down the phone and checked his watch. "'Everyone's a critic, Woozy. We have practice at 3.30. Let's go over what we're going to do, and then I have to get out.' "'Well, I know what that means. It means that you coach this circus. Don't complain. One of these times, some killer will plug me, and you'll be in charge.' Through his sunglasses, Jones gazed beyond the snow-covered guardrail to the bays-blue waters and the blanketed coastline. As he rose higher above the town of Hamilton, he thought about the team and how he was going to start winning ballgames. With Duff's shooting ability squelched, he would again have to rely on speed, passing, and quick jumpers from the guards. Duff's proclivities as a rebounder were diminished too, and that would hurt the team. Without direct proof of a drug usage, he could not sideline Duff, but the team had to sense what was going on. The gate chain was dragged back across the snow ahead where Bucky had left it. A few stray pieces of glass and plastic were strewn on the melted snow asphalt. Jones again shook his head when he thought about Bucky's performance out here Tuesday night. He shifted and crunched the snow up over the narrowly plowed road to the observatory. The mountain road wove through the chunky snowbanks. Ahead, the bright white dome and adjacent building blended into the sunlit snow. Jones saw no sign of any media trucks or reporters. Fred's maroon van covered with road salt spray was parked next to the front entrance. He downshifted the jeep and pulled into the space along the cockeyed snow embankment. Arnie Dewis must have cleared this area after the storm. He hurried through the cooler mountain air and grasped the door handle, but the door was locked. Fred! He pounded on the metal and peered inside the darkened side window. Fred, it's Matthias. Jones cupped his hands under the parker and turned toward the valley. From this perspective, the campus buildings occupied a raised area west of town, but the white church steeple on the common was the most prominent feature. His own house was hidden behind the oaks lining the eastern side of the common. Away from the town, the azure sky met the darker ocean behind the town forest's sifted snow layer. He turned back to the door again and knocked. Come on, Fred! It's cold out here! A fluorescent light popped on. Fred waved and moved quickly from his office. He unlocked the door, and with a snap, Jones moved into the heat. I'm sorry, Matthias. Have you been out there long? Long enough to freeze things I shouldn't freeze, Fred grinned and motioned him inside. Has Kevin Phillips from the Prince William Police Department talked to you? No, but George Strickland talked to me in my office before class. Wanted to know if Povich might have had some enemies. I'm sorry I had to mention Father Gallagher. Well, he's public enemy number one right now. That is, if anyone can find him strickland told me he was missing you think he did it jones shook his head and gazed toward fred's office no way did jim gallagher kill Sergi povich please matthias come in i have a few minutes and then i have to go i still can't believe that Sergi's dead i was telling my wife how could he really be dead when he made it through the worst of times jones walked across the smooth cement to the side offices. "'Povich's computer monitor was dark "'and the blinds were drawn in the cinderblock room. "'Well, Fred, he shouldn't be dead. "'I've got a woman over there in the art department "'who tried to stop the coroner from doing his job. "'A woman who stands on the surface "'to gain a great deal of money. "'And she purchases pricey art "'according to her own account.' "'Well, that's so obvious. "'Why would she kill him in light of what you just said?' "'Jones followed Fred into his brightly lit office.' The computer screen was filled with a colorful card game, and a CD case was on the desk. Spending your time playing cards, Fred? Fred grinned. Small things amuse great minds. Then I'm all set. Listen, you must have gone over to their house. Where is that house, anyways? Corner of Pine and Park. The driveway loops out to the corner. Oh, okay, I know where that is. Tell me about Povich, the man, his life. What was he like? Fred sat behind the desk. He folded his hands and began a recap of Povich's life from the time he emigrated from the Ukraine at age eight. Jones stared at the playing cards on the computer screen as Fred rattled off a list of Povich's achievements throughout his college years. The card game had been placed over the edges of another file, probably from the CD. Jones rubbed his eyes and listened as Fred continued. Povich had married his wife young, but she died suddenly three years ago a drowning at a Long Island party. Elsie entered his life just a few months later. Fred described how Povich's home was rather modest until Elsie moved in. She had the entire interior refurbished, complete with buffed wood floors, richly painted plaster walls, and exclusively designed fabric drapes. The place looks more like the Louvre than a house in Hamilton. "'My impression is that she latched on to him because of the money,' said Jones. "'Well, yes and no. She loved him and could make him laugh,' Fred thought for a moment. "'I can't see her killing Sergi. I need to locate this friend of hers from the business department.' "'Oh, yeah, Meg Meg Eaton,' said Fred. "'Meg's much more down-to-earth than Elsie. I don't have her campus number.' "'Well, I can check the phone book. What about Duff?' asked Jones as he again studied the card game on the computer." Well, Duff admired Sergi. Sergi confided the drug problem to me. I guess I should have reported it. I felt since the other day that Sergi might have felt the same way. Reporting the pill usage, said Jones, for Duff's own good, of course. Jones stood and walked to the doorway. He looked up at the empty platform below the long telescope. Povich died in the front swivel chair. Whoever poisoned him needed knowledge of pharmaceuticals or at the minimal been able to select a drug damaging to a man with heart problems. Perhaps they didn't count on an autopsy because of Povich's condition. That thought led directly to Professor McIntyre. Does the college offer any courses on pharmaceuticals? I'm not sure. What are you getting at, Matthias? All you need is a pharmacist to tell you what to do if you were going to poison somebody. Jones nodded and stroked his chin as he gazed back to the computer. I guess you're right. That leaves any of them. How is your book coming along? Roger Gilman said you were working on something. Fred stood next to the computer. I'm leaving for New York in about ten minutes. Sergi was a great help and inspiration. I feel lost. I have a publishing deadline coming up next month, and now I've lost the great man. Astronomy book? Yes, I'm afraid we're all Cepheid men up here. Jones did not fully understand how Povich made so much money writing about the stars. Explain what that means. Fred grinned and sat on the edge of the desk. Cepheid variables are named after the first star of that type, Delta Cephei. These stars display a regular routine of brightness variation. Some may even be a number of days or perhaps a month. I have trouble trying to think what defense I'm going to use this afternoon. He wanted to check the window behind the card game. No, it's rather simple, Matthias. Collecting data is the crazy part. We all believe that momentarily, during the life of a star, that star may move in on itself, then blow up like a balloon. That changes the whole surface temperature of the star. Hottest when brightest. Jones noticed no writing on the CD case. And people want to read about this. Are you kidding? There's a great market for this. There aren't that many books on the subject. Yeah, like oysters. Well, have a good trip to New York and good luck down there. Maybe you'll take up the torch here. He shook his head and turned toward the telescope. I still don't know who poisoned Povich. Maybe we should just let the police handle this. No, I can't. Hamilton Fletcher himself called me last night. He's afraid of how the murder will affect the prestige of the school. He wants me to solve this so the Fletchers can put it behind them. And my good friend... Jim Gallagher is about to be charged with murder. He's on the run. Plus, I was right here, Fred. I can't just sit back. I have to find the truth. Chapter 10. Nigel did not call Jones until the next day, just before the St. Pat's game. The Hamilton College dean was frazzled when Jones related Duff's apparent drug problems. He told Jones everything would be referred to the college's attorneys, and they would have to contact Duff while the matter was under investigation. Jones drove down the mountain with a sense of loss and betrayal. He also knew Duff's treatment would have already begun if Povich had reported the problems. Duff never appeared in the locker room. The afternoon game provided Jones with the opportunity to forget the Povich murder. In the gym, he spoke for at least 15 minutes. He made it a point to talk to Matt Connor, the coach of St. Pat's, about anything but the murder. He listened to stories of all of Mac's kids playing hockey and how he and his wife were planning a cruise during the spring vacation. We'll travel to Middleton at the end of the week, said Jones. Hate to see you lose two in a row. Very funny, McMack. Mac looked back at the players warming up. Where's Davis? He won't be playing today. Long story. I'll catch you later, Mac. Jones patted him on the shoulder and jogged over to the bench. He was about to call his team over when he felt a sharp jolt against his ribs. I'd like to talk to you. Jones turned. Bucky stood next to him with a folded aluminum clipboard in his hands. You. Me. Bucky, get lost. The crowd cheered as Hamilton gained control at the jump and scored quickly under the boards. I think we should talk. In case you can't see, I have a game going on here right now. He cupped his hands as one of the St. Pat's guys missed the shot, but got the rebound. Defense! Defense! Bucky sat on the bench next to Woozy. St. Pat scored, and Chet Barrows brought the ball up court. You need the long shot. Where's Duff Davis? He's a suspect, you know. Bucky, out! He watched as his team passed the ball as they had in practice. And Tommy Harrington hit from the top of the key. Perfect, Tommy, perfect! Bucky was still on the bench, even though Woozy was trying to get him to leave. St. Pat's missed scoring underneath, and Hamilton controlled the ball. Ronnie Fennell scored on a good pass and a quick layup. Jones clapped his hands, trying not to look at Bucky on the bench. Bucky stood and yelled loudly near Jones's ear. Be aggressive under them boards! Jones was temporarily blocked by Bucky as he tried to move along the bench. Play six! Play six! Knock him down! Knock him down! yelled Bucky. Will you get lost, Bucky? He turned and Fennell missed the pass and St. Pat stole the ball. Jones closed his eyes for a second as the fast break resulted in a layup and a tie score. Ah, you guys are too timid, said Bucky, sitting again. Get out of here, Bucky. Jones moved up the sidelines to get away from him. The referee blew his whistle. What's the matter? Matthias, said Greg Sharp, the referee had known for years. Matthias, you know better than to be this far away from the bench. My fault, Greg, my fault. He stomped back to the bench as the play started again but he could hear Woozy over the crowd telling Bucky to leave. Jones clapped as Harrington scored easily from outside. Good shot, Tommy, good shot! During the next few minutes, his players executed plays perfectly and were able to maintain a six-point lead when Mac called a timeout with four minutes left in the quarter. The cheerleaders, minus Tammy Welch, moved onto the court and started chanting. Bucky was a few feet away, talking to a couple of the professors from the Foreign Languages Department as the team gathered on the bench. Woozy, please, get him out of here. What am I going to do, call security? Jones shook his head. He went over to his team and congratulated them on their superb play, but suggested a closer press on St. Pat's and told them to pick up the pace. As they filtered back onto the court, Bucky plopped himself down on the bench again. You know, Father Gallagher is guilty as sin. Bucky, I'm going to personally knock you off this bench. Yeah? You and what army? I have the authority to transpose my presence in said location. Jones used his hip and sent Bucky careening over the edge of the bench. The round-bellied security man sat on the floor as Jones stood and yelled at his team, Working around! Pass that ball! I could have you up on charges! Bucky moved behind the bench and into the stands. Good passes, boys. Good passes. Yeah, don't telephone it. When Hamilton missed the shot and St. Pat's came within two points, Jones' frustration with Bucky neared the tolerance level. The game was tied after Barrows' stupid outside shot. Mack had increased the pace. Slow it down. Slow it down. Yeah, don't lose your momentum, coach, said Bucky from behind. What momentum? Jones watched as his team passed the ball. Good, good. Good. Shoot that thing! What are you guys, a bunch of sissies? Bucky dropped the clipboard onto the bench. Paper and pencils and a half-eaten plastic wrapped sandwich flew onto the gymnasium floor. Jones stepped over the mess as he slid down the sidelines. Methodical! Be methodical! Barrows hit a casual jump shot. Okay, press them! Press them! Bucky cupped his hands as he scooped the debris on the gym floor. Yeah, get in his shorts! Get in his shorts! When St. Pat scored and the quarter ended, Jones stormed over to Bucky. Get the hell out of here. Woozy! get him out of here. You can't legally remove me. Oh, yes, I can. Jones scanned the bleachers for Nigel. Cannot. Can too. Cannot. Bucky. Jones inhaled and refused to look at the pudgy little security cop. He pretended Bucky's presence was an illusion as he got down on one knee inside the huddle and pumped up his team. You guys have them on the run. Keep them on defense. Push them, boys. When they clapped and broke back onto the court, the cheerleaders roused the crowd and the gym rocked. Jones could hear Bucky's verbal barrage through the second quarter. As the team retreated to the locker room during the half, Bucky tagged along. Jones raced ahead and locked the door. He has the master key, Matthias. I'll fix his panooka, said Jones. He hurried into his office and picked up the phone. Woozy furrowed his brow. Who are you calling? Get me campus security. Jones produced a maniacal grin and nodded his head vigorously as he glanced at the gym door. It would only be a few seconds before Bucky opened the lock. Close the office door, Woozy. Sure. Campus security answering service. He has his own answering service, Woozy? Hello. Hello. Yes, we have a campus emergency here. This is Professor. <laughs> Jones coughed and slurred an inaudible name. I'm at the top of Mount Polaris. Someone has broken in. I think the telescope is damaged. Please, I need security up here right away. Bucky, keys in hand and a surly look on his face, stepped through the gym door. He pulled his pants higher over his stomach and adjusted his glasses as he peered into Jones' office. Woozy turned to Jones. Here comes trouble. Well, you got that right. Mount Polaris? Asked the woman on the other end. Yes. I'm up here right now. I need a security officer to look into this, please. I'll send somebody up there right now, Professor. Thank you. Jones set down the phone, winked at Woozy, and opened the door to the locker room. He moved by Bucky without looking at him and headed toward his team. Jones went to the blackboard and drew out a series of plays in yellow chalk. Bucky wandered over and made a few inane suggestions, but Jones did not respond. Bucky's radio soon crackled, and the muffled voice of the answering service woman punctuated the speaker. Bucky raised the radio to his mouth, and Jones grinned. Driscoll, location, gym locker room. Fifteen hundred hours, fifty nine. make that sixteen hundred hours.
1: Mr. Driscoll, there's been
0: a break-in at the Mount Polaris telescope. Bucky's eyes opened wide, and he stood with his mouth open, staring at the speaker. Huh? A break-in. 10-4! 10-4! Ten four, ten four, he looked over at Jones, ha, the big break, yes, yes, Bucky thrust his arm into the air and scrambled toward the lobby corridor door. Jones winked at Woozy and scrawled the large letters on the blackboard. dunce Without Bucky on the bench, Hamilton's luck changed during the second half. They quickly opened up a ten-point leading that gradually stretched to fifteen points by the fourth quarter. Max smiled and shrugged his shoulders across the court. With less than three minutes left in the game, Jones put in some of the younger players. He sat next to Woozy on the bench. The pressure dissipated as the buzzer sounded and the game started again. I'll tell you, Woozy, Bucky is bad luck. Real bad luck. I'm calling Nigel tonight. You going to have him fired? No, I just want him out of my face. He can get on your nerves, Matthias. I can't believe we won this one without Duff. Jones nodded as he looked to his left. Many of the students darted toward the lobby doors. No one seemed to be watching the game. The heck is going on out there? Somebody probably broke up with their boyfriend, said Woozy as Jones grinned and looked at the red digits counting down. Ah, I feel so good without Bucky here. Well, I'm convinced we would have lost this game with him here. Oh, no doubt about that, Woozy. No doubt about it. An odd malaise spread through the stands. People descended the bleachers, and Jones did not know what to think because of the large Hamilton lead. Woozy stood as Leo Crowley moved down the sidelines. Jones stood as the clock passed the 22nd mark, and the red-bearded Leo tapped his arm. Did you hear what happened, Coach? I'm just trying to end this game, Leo. They just pulled Tammy Welch's body from the Devonshire Quarry. What? Jones's face tightened. He was oblivious to the clock now, stunned as the game ended. Mac ran across the court and shook his hands, but Jones said nothing. The cheerleaders were crying and hugging each other down the sidelines. Tammy was an outgoing, sweet kid. Jones had just signed her cast at the dorm last night. Now she was dead. In the gray light across the Devonshire hills, Jones brought his Jeep toward three erratically parked Prince William cruisers and two Hamilton cruisers. Lights blazed over the snow and open quarry. The border between Prince William and Hamilton crossed through the quarries below. As he exited the jeep, Wendell Harris talked on the radio from his cruiser. Strickland was only a few dozen yards away with John Tully and a cluster of Prince William offices. Wendell looked up as he held the microphone. Matthias, What happened, Wendell? She drove her car over the edge. Jones shook his head. Why? Don't know. Maybe the cast caused the problem. Divers got the body out about an hour ago. Clayton just left. Jones nodded. The thought of such a vital girl being dead sickened him. As Wendell talked to Ned back at the station, Jones pushed through the snow. Strickland turned as he gazed into the murky water lit by headlights. George, I can't believe a girl like this would drive her car into the water. Accidents happen. What was she doing up here? Kelly took the toothpick from his mouth. We're just trying to piece that together. She was last seen in her dorm cafeteria just before noon. She received a phone call. Well, from whom? We don't know that, said Tricklin. She got her crutches and left in her car. Some high school guys up here said they saw the mirror reflection in the water. The car sunk and wedged on rocks about 20 feet down. A few inches and the car would have been 60 or 70 feet down. We used to swim here as kids. No one knows how deep this really is. I have a bad feeling about this, said Jones. I think it was an accident, Matthias, said the gray-haired Tully. Jones stepped to the edge of the bare rocks. He wondered why she was up here at all. She did not have a boyfriend, but she must have been dating somebody. To drive up here alone was too suspicious. Chapter 11 Jones was surprised when Meg Eaton agreed to have supper and talked to him at the Colonial House restaurant. He sat at a booth tucked down back, sipped on coffee, and had a chat with Franny Gilmore. Her green waitress uniform contrasted with her sharp red hair and her blue eyes opened wide every time she accentuated a word. Tammy used to come in here with all her friends. Students? Yeah. Any boyfriend? asked Jones. He checked the lobby for Meg Eaton. She said on the phone she'd be wearing a red ski parker. No, she just seemed like such a nice girl. I'm surprised she didn't have a boyfriend. Guys used to talk to her, but she hung around with the girls. Jones nodded and wanted to erase Timmy's death from his mind. What about the Povich thing? You have anything? Jones shook his head. Everyone's saying Father Gallagher, Poison Povich. It's on TV. I know. I don't think he did it. He just wouldn't do it. The front doors opened and a stout woman with short, straight brown hair and a red parker scanned the restaurant. Jones raised his hand and smiled. Her tanned, weathered face didn't flinch. "'Hot date, Matthias?' asked Franny. Jones pressed his lips and shook his head. "'I'm leaving.' Jones slid from the booth and stood. Meg's eyes were like green and brown marbles, and she never looked directly at him as she spoke. "'You must be Mr. Jones.' "'I appreciate you talking with me, Miss Eden.' "'Well, I thought it might be a good idea to put some things in perspective.' She unzipped her pocket and folded it over her lap as she sat down. Her stocky frame filled her green-knitted sweater. Elsie and Sergi were together for five years. Really? He remembered McIntyre telling him Povich was married three years ago. He decided to maintain a naive posture. You want some coffee or a cocktail? Herbal tea is fine. Franny, waiting at the next table, mouthed the words and she wrote the order on her pad. I know this must be difficult for you also. Maybe more difficult. Elsie and I go back a long way. She taught me a lot about the arts. I teach business, she said, looking at Jones for the first time. My training was not cultural. It was accounting. For several minutes, she went out of her way to demonstrate her business background and her education in the arts under Elsie McIntyre. Jones listened patiently. Then she quickly leaned forward. Mr. Jones, you're probably asking yourself why I'm talking to you at all. Well, the thought had crossed my mind. Meg propped her elbows on the table and balanced her chin precariously on her knuckles. Her eyes moistened. What I'm about to tell you may seem absurd. What is it you have to say? asked Jones. Franny brought the tea in a dainty, floured green cup and saucer. She set the steamy cup on the table. Meg lifted the tea upward and inhaled. Then she sipped. Mr. Jones, I think Elsie took advantage of Sergi all these years. How so? Well, the way she redid the house, she spent thousands in her private collection. Not that Sergei didn't have the money. He did. Money from the old country. Money from his books and lectures. Money from his wife. She never asked. That's what bothered me about Elsie. She never asked him at all. She just went ahead and did what she had to do, and then he wrote the check. Jones finished his coffee. So, she controlled the finances. Correct. Meg pushed the teabag through the strainer and slowly lifted the cup to her lips again. I don't think it was till he was out of the hospital that he really started looking at his life, including the finances. Having a brush with death does that to you. He moved the money around and put her on a budget. Interesting. Can I get you something to eat, Meg? Special of the day is chicken parm. Oh well, no, that's fine. Chicken parm. Franny put up her thumb and wrote down the order as she headed to the kitchen. Do you think Professor McIntyre could have poisoned her husband? She raised her thick brows and looked him in the eye again. You think she did. Sounds like she had much to gain. I think Sergi still would have given her anything she wanted, but... But what? All that money from Elton. I'm sure she used some of that, too. Maybe a lot of it. I don't have any proof. I can only go by what she did. The extra money. For what? Art. Jones nodded. Then she was threatened. I guess. That is isn't accurate. I would say she was frustrated. Stealing money from the Alton Grant was a serious matter. Any awareness by Povich would have threatened McIntyre. Jones needed more coffee. Franny appeared from behind the next booth with a carafe and filled his cup. You read my mind. I always do. The palms should be about ready. Nice girl, said Jones. He drank some coffee. I think we need a drink after what happened this afternoon. I don't understand. She seemed confused as she drank the tea. I'm sorry. I thought you knew. Tammy Welch, one of my cheerleaders, was killed this afternoon. Car went over the quarry cliffs. Meg raised her hands to her mouth. Her eyes had the crazed look of someone about to jump off a bridge. Are you all right, Meg? No, I'm not all right. Oh, God, this thing just gets worse. She pushed her way out of the booth, leaped to her feet, and dropped her parker. Jones picked it up, as she bolted for the door. He trailed her across the restaurant, stopped at the door, and grabbed her arm. Meg, what do you mean it gets worse? Listen, Mr. Jones, I misspoke. No, you were pretty clear. I have to go, she said, looking at his hand on her parker. Jones released his grip, and she hurried out through the foyer and on to Main Street. Franny appeared behind him with two steaming plates of pasta and chicken palm. Well, where is she? Gone. You have a way with women, Matthias. Ain't that the truth. Jones walked with her across the restaurant. Sometimes people really amaze me. She knows something. So much for the meal. Franny set the plates on the table. Come on, Matthias. I haven't had supper yet. Franny prattled on about Boston's sports teams as Jones finished the last piece of garlic bread, but Meg's statement about things getting worse frazzled him. Franny had distracted him with the sports talk, but Meg's sullen face and odd reaction to Tammy Welch's death in the quarries bothered him. I remember when the Celtics used to have not just great teams, Matthias, but legendary teams. My dad used to take me to the old Boston Garden. Well, I was in Indiana, but I do remember those teams. Nigel Kent, dressed in a charcoal topcoat and a white scarf, walked through the front doors with Mrs. Johnson. His housekeeper raised her brows and waved her fingers at Jones, and Nigel nodded once. The gray-haired college president raised an eyebrow as if he knew something was up, then he removed his black leather gloves. Matthias, I just left Fletcher Hill. And how are things on Mount Olympus? asked Jones as he stood. Please sit down. When the team goes into Boston for the playoffs, we'll get you a ticket, Franny. That would be great, Matthias. Thank you, she turned to Nigel. Can I get you anything, Dean Kent? No, uh, we've eaten. Thank you very much. Nigel smiled graciously and sat next to Jones in the booth. Is he behaving himself tonight, Mrs. Johnson? You always have to keep an eye on him. Matthias, Hamilton Fletcher wants you to lead the group up to Tammy Welch's funeral. Me? You're the coach. The funeral is Wednesday. Where is she from, anyways? Jones still had his suspicions as to whether Tammy really drove alone off the quarry cliff. Portland, I'll give you directions. Sure. The way things are going, Woozy can coach the game. Well, the Middleton game has been postponed a day. I knew that girl personally, said Nigel, tightening his brow. To die so young in such an absurd accident. I don't think it was an accident. Honestly, Matthias, why would you say that? A feeling. A feeling. Well, the school doesn't need any more speculation in light of the Dr. Povich poisoning, and by the way, Duff Davis is scheduled to meet with me tomorrow morning, and I have issued an order keeping him from playing sports until he is drug tested. But I haven't been able to reach him. Duff is a suspect in the Povich thing. Why? I believe Povich threatened to make his drug dependency public. Duff stood to lose his scholarship. Jones lowered his voice. What do you know about Elsie McIntyre? Nigel's face twisted as if he were having a bout with indigestion. Ah, another complication. As far as Elsie, wonderful lady with a superb private art collection. Povich was more technical, liked to talk shop, but Elsie is well-versed in a number of areas, such as... Nigel rubbed his chin musically, well-read philosophy, of course, art, history. She conducted herself with a grace not often seen. well, she's a suspect too. Oh, that's ridiculous. I will vouch for her character implicitly. She know anything about pharmaceuticals or drugs? I've never had a conversation about that. Matthias, the woman has been through enough with the death of her companion and friend. Who else are you going to suspect now, Fred Dempsey? I want to talk to Fred. Nigel sat rigid. Jones could see he was getting annoyed. Fred, mild-mannered and thoroughly immersed in his work? And what do you have on him? I want to know more about his collaboration with Povich on those books and articles he's written. He's working on new books right now. Well, that's a school requirement. Fred, and anyone else who has a teaching position here at the college, is required to publish their work. Fred has procrastinated a bit. But I might add, he has left from New York to finalize the publication of his book. I think you should be looking for your friend, Father Gallagher. Gallagher didn't do it. Well, how can you be so sure? He just wouldn't do it. And everyone around Povich is a suspect. Nigel pressed his lips together, and he removed his glasses. Out of respect for you and your relationship with Father Gallagher, Jim didn't do it. Nigel held his glasses in both hands as if he were gripping a steering wheel. Matthias, I have spoken at great length with Hamilton Fletcher about this. We feel that maybe your personal feelings toward Father Gallagher are clouding your thoughts. My dad used to tell me that intuition was one thing and personal feelings another. I just don't think he'd do it. Not because he's a priest. Jim is more logical than that. Jones knew he was doing everything he could. rationalize Gallagher's innocence. But while he wasn't logical about his hatred of Sergei Povich. No, he wasn't. And he is on the run. Well, that's true, Jones' cell phone sounded. Excuse me. Jones. Loud music shot into his ear. Jonesy, I want you over Club Max in a
2: half an hour.
0: Jones leaned away from the table. Coco, listen, I'm tired.
2: Yeah, well, so am I. I've been conducting a little investigation myself. 8.30, be there.
0: The line went dead and Jones stared at the phone. He looked into Nigel's blue eyes. That was... I know who that was, Matthias. And I've told you before that associating with Coco Stefani is risky. The man is linked with organized crime. But he's not a bad guy. Nigel pointed at him. I can only tell you that it looks bad for your reputation. Or well, so does the murder of Sergei Povich, Nigel. Team Hotshot... Duff Davis becomes an immediate suspect when Jones learns Duff has confided in Dr. Povich that he has a secret drug addiction which would get him tossed off the team and out of school. And Father Gallagher's unusual hatred of Povich, taking money from a foundation they were both competing for, appears to be unusual. And then there's Professor McIntyre of the art department, partner of Povich for many years, who will inherit his money. As the episode winds down, Jones is stunned with the rest of the town as Tammy Welch, one of his cheerleaders, is found dead in a car underwater at the quarries at the notch separating Prince William and Hamilton. I'm Robert P. Fitton, waiting to find out who the murderer really is.